when I was a little girl, I used to go with my mom to the well every single morning. We would go early in the cool part of the day when the other women went to the well as well. Oh, I loved it. Oh, my mom would carry the big jars, and we had a servant girl who would carry the medium-sized jars, and I carried the small basin to the well. Sometimes I would accidentally spill some over to the side. But, you know, oh, when we were at the well, the women loved to talk and tell stories. It was so much fun. Sometimes we'd laugh, and sometimes we would cry. Oh, but not always sad tears. Sometimes they were happy tears. Like when Adonai blessed Keturah so she could be a mommy. There was another lady at the well. Her name was Zadia. She lived on the far side of town. And she took care of her dad because she didn't have a husband or kids or anything. But she was really nice. One time when I was three, she made me a doll. And I carry that thing around everywhere. She also told really good stories, like that time when our grandfathers came to Corazon and built the whale, well, that we were standing at right then. I loved her. But one day, Zadia stopped coming in the mornings with everyone else. My mom said that we weren't allowed to talk to her anymore. She had to come in the afternoons all alone. You know, I thought I heard some women talking about her once, so I asked my mom, but she wouldn't tell me why. It was not for me to know. Education, influence, respect, required, oral, tradition, history, and fruition. We are Pharisees. As I grew older, I started carrying the bigger jars. Mom still went, but she had to carry the smaller jars now. We didn't have a servant girl anymore, so it got kind of difficult on the Sabbath because you were only allowed to carry things a short distance before you broke Sabbath law. Rome changed things a lot. I also learned a lot more about Zadia than I ever really wanted to know. She still came in the afternoons, but she wasn't alone anymore. She had a little boy in tow with her. The other kids weren't allowed to play with him. They were basically outcasts. And her father was gone, so she didn't have anybody to take care of them. Her life was a nightmare. In fact, to survive, there were other men, too. One time, when I was walking along the road, um, I saw some men dragging someone out into the middle of the street. And I was a little scared, but I wanted to know what was happening, so I hid so that I could see. And it was Zadia. And these men took these large rocks and they raised their arms into the air. And I screamed and I ran all the way home. I was so scared and I started crying and crying all night long. My mom braided my hair and she tried to wipe my tears away, but we never spoke of Zadia again. One time I asked what was to become of her son, but it's not for me to know. No rule broken, no sin unspoken. Name it, please, give it and show it. We are Pharisees. I have a husband now, and a son, and actually a little one on the way. Oh. My heart longs for a daughter. 
but my head secretly hopes for another son. It's just too difficult to be one of us. Oh, I'm married to a rabbi, Rabbi Ben Judah of Corazon. Um, he spends most of his days on the steps of the synagogue, and I and the other ladies will pass by them on the way to the well. And when we get to the well, they're pretty much all we talk about. <laughs> That's and the Roman occupation, how long it's going to last, when, what Herod is going to build next, and when, and when Adonai is going to send Elijah back to us. My husband wonders that too, when he's going to come back and right the wrongs that have happened to our nation and make Israel strong again. We must be holy and set apart, pure and clean for when he comes. You know, sometimes I wish I could be in those huddles with the men learning what they learned, knowing what they know. But my mom always says the same thing. You must follow and quietly keep the rites and rituals so that he may thrive in his world. Otherwise, it's not for me to know. Hold it tight, protect it tight, set apart light, always right. We are Pharisees. Thank you, Amy. Good morning. Oh, good deal. Welcome to Rolling Hills. I'm really glad that you're here today. I listened to that for the third time this morning and, and just am engaged at the story of what it must have been like to be um, a first century anyone, um, particularly a woman. And so thank you for that. There are moments even in headlines this week where I know that we would all do so much better um, if we were able to put ourselves into another person's shoes. Well, welcome to Rolling Hills. It's Christmas, and we are excited about a series on perspectives. And, and so this week, I was prompted to get out our nativity. Um, and we, like many of you, we have like that nice nativity at home that we don't let the kids play with. Um, and then we have this one, um, the, the little people one, the one that we allow them to mess around with. This one sits in our bonus room upstairs underneath the Christmas tree. Um, and what our kids don't know is that at night while they're sleeping, I go upstairs and I set it to make it neat. Um, because I really don't like all the pieces strewn everywhere. Um, for example, with the wise men, I like to put them color coordinated by their correct tent. So like they go by their right pieces and stuff. And Susan tells me to relax, but I'm a little OCD. Like I want the red camel to go right next to the little red wise man because I think it matches and it looks better, right? You know? And so in this series on Christmas perspectives, we're looking at all the different characters of the nativity and how they must have reacted to that very first moment. There's my third wise man. Okay. I knew he was missing. And so I'm putting this out and I'm going, okay, well, you got to have some really important people like, okay, well, so there's Mary um, and we should find a Joseph because he kind of matters a little bit in the story. And, uh, and then all of a sudden you've got to realize, well, they need some, oh, here's the donkey. That's how they got to Bethlehem. And, uh, and our little people nativity set also comes with food because even though they were apparently homeless, that doesn't mean that they didn't have food. Like there it is right there. And so then of course there's baby Jesus. You've got to put him there. We're missing some folks. Oh yeah, sheep. And they didn't get there all by themselves. There were shepherds, you know, in the fields nearby. We're going to talk about them in a couple of weeks. That one fell over. Sheep are dumb. That's okay. So here you go. All right. And we get to this whole series. And last week we talked about this idea of King Herod. And I go home and I look at our nativity and I'm sitting there like you guys. And I'm going, wait a minute. We don't have a King Herod in our nativity. And so I brought one this morning. 
He may look like the Incredible Hulk to you, but it's really King Herod. I'll get the baby boys. Okay, so there we go. And then um, this week it's all about Pharisees. And so I come here with this assigned message to say we're going to talk about the perspectives of the Pharisees, but our nativity didn't come with Pharisees either, so I brought some of those. Um, Here's Batman. And you're like, but wait a minute. Everything that I know about Pharisees from the scripture said that they were the bad guys and Batman's a good guy. That's okay. You hang with me. We're going to get there too. And I brought Superman. Um, And I brought... Why do you keep falling over? Okay, so I brought another... Yeah, he's not in the Justice League movie, but he's a DC comic guy too. I brought Green Lantern. And then my final Pharisee, I brought Goldar from the Power Rangers because he's one of the enemies and he looks, like, he looks like a flying monkey from the Wizard of Oz, but we're going to hang with him too. And so I wanted to make sure that my nativity was outfitted with the right people and what it looks like for them to be a part of the Christmas story, knowing that they're not necessarily found in our parts of Scripture, or are they? Who are the Pharisees and why do they matter for our understanding and our interpretation of what this nativity is and what it is that Christmas means to us? I spent some time this week with a lady in our community named Christy McClellan, and she's a Bible teacher and a scholar and teaches at Williamson College. She's come to Rolling Hills before and taught our Israel class this past summer. She's actually the speaker at our women's retreat coming up in um, January, which I will not be attending, and that's okay. Um, But I invite all of you in the room who are women to sign up and participate in that. If you're a husband or a man in the room and you want to, like, equip somebody else to go make sure you're home that weekend, you're taking care of the kids and mind and shop so that the women can go and to study because she's a fantastic teacher. And so we were talking over at Star about, about Pharisees and talking about what it meant to be a Pharisee in first century Judaism and what that means for us today in our latter days Christianity, understanding who Jesus is better because of them. And I think we can. And in order to do that, we've got to go and uh, apply some history and some context to understand who they are better. And it's a section in your notes this morning where you can jot down a few things because we're going to figure out where these people came from and why these people matter. First, 586. So in 586 BC, 586 years before the turn of the century, when Jesus Christ came, this is a moment when the Pharisees rose. And and you'll know from history that 586 BC was an important date for Israel because it was during the Babylonian exile when the Babylonians had come in and overtaken all of Judah. And what was happening in the lives of the people in 586, the temple was destroyed. This temple, this place of worship, this temple, this place where the sacrificial system was instituted, where the priests gathered to lead people into worship, it was destroyed. And with, with no temple, there meant no priesthood, and they were exiled, and so there was no holy city. And without the presence of those three things, what was going to happen to worship? And so different sects of Judaism birthed Pharisees. And the whole idea is that we would preserve. We would preserve the law, preserve the tradition, preserve the history, preserve the narrative, and preserve the worship of the people so that we can, in a period of exile, remain connected to God. Pharisaical Judaism was born. And you fast forward after 70 years of Babylonian exile, the Persians came and they took over and Cyrus the Persian was a good guy and actually allowed the Jews who had been deported all the way to Babylon to return to their homeland and to begin rebuilding the temple. It was a great day. We're going to institute worship again. The Pharisees remained a key feature in rebuilding the practice of worship and the observance of the law in the Jewish community. And then the Greeks came. And with the Greeks, Hellenization came. Jeff did a great job last week talking about Antiochus, um, this guy who went into the Holy of Holies. The temple is rebuilt, and he sacrificed a pig on the altar of God, which was an abomination. And the Maccabees came, and they kicked him out, and it was this big revolt, and it was a good day for Jewish people. And it's why we celebrate Hanukkah. Even my family celebrates Hanukkah during the year, because we think that it's another tool that God can use to point us to the light of Christ that is coming. And it's fantastic to look at this history. The Pharisees were growing stronger during all of that time, during the intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, so that when Jesus arrived on the scene, they were figures of prominence and power. They were respected. 
they were liked. People related to the Pharisees. One scholar, a German guy who lived between 1844 and 1910, like old guy, long gone. His name is Emil Schur, and he writes this. They, the Pharisees, had the bulk of the nation as their ally. And women especially, anybody who was an outcast, anybody who was down would have looked to the Pharisees for access and for communication with God. They had the greatest influence upon congregations so that all acts of public worship, prayers, and sacrifices were performed according to their injunctions. Their sway over the masses was so absolute that they could obtain a hearing, like a judicial court hearing, even when they said something against the king or the high priest. Consequently, they were the most capable of counteracting the design of the kings. Even the Sadducees, those were the political priesthood. Those who had attached themselves to the Rome and purchased themselves a second on the Sanhedrin so that they could be a part of the government and a part of the court. In their official acts, even the Sadducees adhered to the demands of the Pharisees. They hated one another, but they adhered to the demands because otherwise the multitudes of people would not have tolerated them. The Sadducees knew where they stood, that the Pharisees were influential people in the community. See, they may have been an enemy of Jesus, but they weren't the enemy of Jesus. That was reserved for an evil one who was running rampant in the world, who didn't want Christ to come, who didn't want him to sacrifice his life so that we can have an avenue to know God. The Pharisees caught up in the shuffle, and they had previously been good, influential guys, people who wanted to preserve law, to preserve tradition, to make it possible for us to continue worshiping God in the way that he desired to be worshiped. So if they're there on the scene in the intertestamental period, if they're in positions of power and prominence right there when Christ was born, where were they in the nativity? Scripture tells us, I think. And so for us to take that history in context, we can arrive at a possible connection to see where they were in Matthew chapter 2. We started there last week and we'll continue there today. It says, after Jesus was born, verse 1, in Bethlehem in Judea during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem and asked, where is the one who has been born King of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship him. Have you ever wondered how they knew how those guys all the way from the east for as far and as long as they had traveled, how they knew to go and look for Jesus in Jerusalem, how they knew to find a king who was going to be king of the Jews, how they knew that that's what that star meant when they saw it rising. Perhaps. Prophecy? Okay, well, that's great. Well, how did they know Jewish prophecy? How did they know messianic expectation? Maybe it's because centuries before, the God of this great universe had taken a bunch of faithful kids and put them to a position of power in a time of Babylonian exile for 70 years. You know them as Daniel, Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, and all of the other Jewish kids who weren't only influenced by the culture around them, but became influencers of the culture around them. Maybe the same preservation mentality that gave rise to the Pharisees in the first place was the same preservation mentality that took prophecy to Eastern peoples so that they would know what to look for and when to look. And so you keep going in the book of Matthew. When King Herod heard this, we talked last week, he was disturbed in all Jerusalem with him. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Messiah was to be born. 
They answered immediately, in Bethlehem and Judea, they replied, for this is what the prophet has written. And then they began to quote the book of Micah. And I'm thinking to myself that they weren't saying, okay, hold on, let us go research an answer. Hey, give us a minute and we'll Google it. I don't know. We'll get out our scrolls and we'll like unroll them and we'll look verse by verse and try to figure out what it is you're talking about. No, they quoted it because they knew it. These guys, these teachers of the law were experts in everything that the Old Testament said, all of the law and all of the prophets. And they knew exactly what to be looking for and what to expect. So why? Why, when Eastern people came and said, that's the star that your prophecy talks about, why didn't they all bandwagon around it and go with those wise men in order to worship that king? And how do we make the connection to the Pharisees in the first place? Mark chapter 2 verse 16 does it for us. It says, when the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees? When the teachers of the law, who were the Pharisees. When Herod had called together all the people's chief priests and the teachers of the law who were the Pharisees, they're the guys that walked in and said, oh yeah, of course there's a star and it's going to land in Bethlehem because it's going to announce the birth of our king. Why weren't they looking The Sadducees were a group of people who had abandoned all hope of God sending a redeemer, but the Pharisees were still waiting, still expecting, still studying, still learning, still understanding that one day God was going to send a redeemer, that one day God was going to send a rescuer, that one day God was going to send a right to all of the wrongs that they had experienced. Why weren't they the ones looking? Why weren't they the ones expecting? We know that Pharisees weren't a prominent picture in the nativity of Jesus, but they were an ever-present feature in the ministry of grown-up Jesus. And they hated him. Rather than receiving him, they hated him. Why? Well, there's lots of answers. They're in your notes today. One of them we already talked about when we hinted on Mark chapter 2. It says in Matthew chapter 9 verses 10 and 11, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? They were incensed by the fact that Jesus associated with such unsavory people. The Pharisees hated him because of who he associated with. Guilty by association. Have you ever felt that way? Have you ever looked at someone else that way? Why else? Well, the, the, the Pharisees hated Jesus because he didn't follow their protocol. In the book of Matthew chapter 9 verse 14, it says, John's disciples came in and asked him, asked Jesus, how is it that we, John's disciples, people that follow John who are pointing to you in effect, but how is it that we as John disciples and the Pharisees, we follow their protocol, why don't you? How is it that we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Why aren't you guys following the same rules that we are. Jesus didn't follow their protocol, so they hated him. Scripture even reveals in Matthew 27, 18 that they were basically just jealous. Scripture even reveals their jealousy, and this is why the Pharisees were the, 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 the populace of the people. They, they, they had the affection and the influence that they wanted, but Jesus came on the scenes, and Jesus can draw a crowd. And not only can Jesus draw a crowd, but Jesus can draw a big crowd, a crowd who whenever he healed someone and whenever he taught scriptures to someone, they marveled. Scripture says they marveled in amazement at his teaching. Why? Because he spoke as someone who had authority, unlike their scribes and teachers of the law. 
He spoke with an authority that they did not possess. He had an ability to communicate scripture that they did not have. He was leading people and corralling people in a way that they could not. And so, of course, their natural response was jealousy. But it wasn't just the fact that he hung out with unsavory people. And it wasn't just the fact that he didn't follow all of their protocols. And it wasn't just the fact that he had attracted and amassed crowds and they were jealous of what he was able to do. Ultimately, the Pharisees hated Jesus because he claimed to be the Messiah. It's why they arrested him. It's why he was tried. It's why he was convicted. It's why he was ultimately crucified. Mark chapter 14, verses 61 and 62. The high priests are asking him this question and saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus said, I am. And so ultimately they hated him because of who he claimed to be. The problem with that is that the same Pharisees, the same teachers of the law who knew that he was going to be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, the same ones who could have quoted all of that Old Testament law, all of that Old Testament history, all of that Old Testament prophecy, the same ones who knew to look for the 300 plus messianic expectation prophetic passages from Scripture, the same ones who would have looked at the life of Jesus and identified the fact that he met every single one. They had four specific criteria. They had dumbed down all of that prophetic messianic expectation into four things that the Messiah would have had to do before he could have been declared the Messiah. And Jesus did every single one of them right in front of their faces and they still rejected him. But, but if we look at Jesus, he didn't actually have a whole lot of affection for them either. So they may have hated him. Listen to how he responded. In Matthew chapter 18 verse 6 says this, if anyone causes, this is Jesus talking, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Y'all didn't know Jesus was in the mafia. Y'all know that you watch the mob movies and that's how they take people out. Like Jesus saying, it would be better for you to go out that way than to be someone who causes somebody else to stumble when they believe in me. If there's one thing that riled Jesus up, it would have been preventing someone else from seeing God. You know, ultimately, we examine the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees. He wasn't upset by their, it's in your notes, orthodoxy, what they believed, what they stated. You see, they believed the right things. What he challenged was their orthopraxy. They didn't do the right things for the right reasons. Matthew 23, we know it as a chapter of woes against the Pharisees because of all of the wrong things that they do. Verses 3 and 4 say this, so you, disciples, you must be careful to do everything they tell you. Do what they tell you to do. That's right. But do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. It's the definition of a hypocrite. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on people's shoulders. And Jesus came to be the lifter of our burdens, not the piler on of additional ones. You see, ultimately, the big challenge that Jesus had with Pharisees is that Pharisees made it difficult for people to know God. Verse 13 of Matthew 23 says this, but woe to you. Watch out. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You even in your desire to preserve the law, to preserve the tradition, to preserve the Torah, and to protect everything that we stand for, you make it hard for people to know and to follow God and to ultimately receive the incredible gift that he has given. You know what the Pharisees specialized in throughout all of their history? Hedges. Like hedges, like bushes? Yep, hedges. A little bit like this one that we saw last week. <laughs> 
oh, you immediately know what this is. And some of you are freaking out. You're like, you're totally bothered because you're an Alabama fan and this is salt in your wound. But it ought to not be because this ought to be, like, how silly is this? You ought to have been able to look at that and take a little bit of joy about the fact that that Auburn fan got stuck in some bushes. And you Auburn fans, it's okay that that girl's stuck in the bushes. You're just celebrating the victory that you had last week and not even caring about the loss that you had yesterday because last week's what mattered. I get it. Look at this girl. My favorite thing about that game, I'm not even a sports guy and I don't watch games, but I saw the last two minutes of that one because my brother-in-law was in town for Thanksgiving and I'm watching this and I'm going, the camera keeps going back to her over and over and over. Like there's this whole thing happening in the middle of the field with the coach and all of the actual players, but the camera keeps diverting to this poor girl that's trying to swim out of some bushes and she's stuck. Okay, I'm distracted. We're going to have to remove that. Like it's hedges. The very thing that were put there to protect people became a barrier for people. And that's what the Pharisees did around the law. You see, hedges in Scripture existed as additional interpretations that became laws in order to help people follow the Torah. The Pharisees came up with additional verses, additional rules, additional regulations that were basically their interpretations of the law in order to help people follow and not break the law. They were oral traditions passed down from generation of Pharisee to generation of Pharisee, continuing to be added on. They eventually became what Jewish people know as the Mishnah and helped form the Talmud, additional rabbinic writings that they follow in order to observe the law. Things like this, Sabbath command. The idea that we're supposed to observe the Sabbath and remember it and keep it holy and not break it. Well, they came up with all of these additional hedges. These additional hedges, 39 categories of them, 39 categories with hundreds of laws each to remind us to keep the Sabbath holy. You think it's a bad deal that you've got to memorize not just 10 commandments, but all 613 commandments in the Old Testament law. But now you've got to memorize 39 new categories with hundreds of sub-laws in every single one in order for you to do this one thing, which is to observe the Sabbath and keep it holy. It was a burden for people tied around their neck that ultimately made it difficult for them to see that the law was a gift from God to help them recognize their need for God. One was something like this, like you're not supposed to boil a goat in its mother's milk. Can you imagine? First of all, that's weird. Like, but scripture says it, Old Testament, we're not supposed to boil a goat in its mother's milk. And I'm thinking, okay, I'm the goat. And like you start to boil me in this liquid and I'm smelling it and I'm tasting like, this is familiar. Oh yeah, I know this. This is my mom's milk. Oh, it's so comforting. And then all of a sudden the heat turns up and I boil literally from the end. It's like, that's freaky. That's weird. But that law right there, when you add on all of the additional hedges that Pharisees brought into existence became what we know as kosher dietary restrictions where people even today have two different countertops in their kitchen, one for meat and one for dairy because you don't let the two touch. All of these hedges became additional barriers to prevent people from seeing the God who gave them very good gifts it became difficult for people to connect with God because they were so concerned with making sure that they didn't violate even an iota of the law, including all of the additional addendums that the Pharisees added through generations. What in the world is in this for us, especially at Christmas time, as we look at people that weren't even at that original nativity? Here it is. There's Pharisees among us, and one of them is probably me. Where is my inner Pharisee? 
R.C. Sproul is a teacher and a theologian who writes, as sinners, we ascribe to the Pharisees every conceivable sin we think ourselves not guilty of. Because I read scripture and I look at the conflict between Jesus and the Pharisees and I think to myself, whew, I am glad I'm not stuck in a rut like those guys. But there's a judger in here. There's a, there's a legalist in here. There, there's someone in here who wants to preserve my own little box of traditional Christianity so much that I'm willing to hedge others out. Where is my inner Pharisee? And what part of that good gospel story am I ignoring? What part of the authority of Christ in my life do I discredit and discount the way that they did? What hedges am I building that make it difficult for people to see and know and follow Jesus? Of anyone else in Herod's day, these guys, the Pharisees, not these guys, Batman, Superman, and Green Lantern, but the Pharisees had the best opportunity to know and point people to Christ. And yet they were the very ones who spent the next few decades making it difficult for people to see him. I want us to be the ones that make it easy for people to see Jesus. You know, at Christmas, we're going to focus on all the characters in our nativity. And we'll get there as a church too, I promise. We're going to talk about the shepherds and the wise men and Mary and Joseph are crying out loud. But Sometimes when we spend all of our focus on the people in the story, we neglect the ones who weren't there. My fear for us as a church and as a people is that we might spend all of our time and energy focusing on the ones who are in our story and neglecting the ones who aren't. Like a coworker, or a classmate, or a family member, a significant other, a child. I don't want to be the reason why they're hedged out this Christmas. I want to be the reason why they clearly see Jesus. Are we going to spend all of our time focusing on who's in the story? And who knows the story? Or are we going to give some attention to the ones who missed it? And the ones today, right here in our community, who are missing it? You know, there's hope. There was hope for the Pharisees. Because in Acts chapter 15, there was a council of early Christians talking about early church things. And the Bible says that some Pharisees were there. Council of new Christians and some Pharisees were there. Now they were causing trouble, but still, y'all, they were there. Paul reminding us, he was a Pharisee among Pharisees, a leader in that group. And yet he revolutionized the world, world with the gospel message of Jesus. There was hope for those guys. But for the first few decades of Christ come, they spent all of their time pointing people away from the Messiah God gave, building hedges, making it difficult for people to see Jesus. This Christmas, I, I want us to be a reason why people see Jesus this year. 
and a people while they make it in this year and not another barrier that keeps them out. That's my prayer. And that's what I learned from some people who had every reason to be there, but weren't. Would you pray with me? Father, we're so grateful for this day and this opportunity to worship and to learn. Father, I pray that you would reveal inside every single one of us our inner pharisaical tendencies. And God, that you would tear down all of the hedges that we are building that prevent people from seeing Jesus. Because this Christmas, we want to be a reason why people see your son and why they come to worship him. It's in his holy, perfect, precious name that we pray. Amen.